Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim for uh, today's better message. Better applause this time, man. Last week. Good morning, good morning. Hey, if you have a Bible, open up with me to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. Before we dive into the scriptures, there's a couple things for me that I want to uh, lay out there. Next week, guess what's happening? Two services next week, starting at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. If you have children and you would like them to be part of the children's ministry, make sure you come to the 11 a.m. service. That is where our children's ministry will be for the time being. So make sure you, uh, you make note of that. And do not show up at 10 o'clock. You'll be right in the middle of the service, So, which would be, I guess, not a bad thing if you showed up. But, you know. You might have to wait till the 11 o'clock service, but anyway. And then also, we are doing baptisms, the second service on uh, December 12th at 11 a.m. There's a sign-up sheet on the Welcome Center, which is directly across from the main sanctuary doors. You can go there, sign up. Make sure you put your phone number down. Those of you that have, I'll be contacting you this week. So make sure you sign up if you're interested in being baptized or you have some questions about it and you're like, hey, I don't know. Uh, just just put your name down and I'll give you a call and we'll, we'll have a conversation about it. But... Uh, Yes, and then also, what a man wrap. Dude, I saw wood on that thing, and I was like, whoa, did you nail that in there, man? It's probably glued, but anyway, pretty awesome. So here we come this morning to the final letter to the churches in Asia Minor that Jesus is writing to. And I have to say that Jesus saved the most sobering message for last. This is... Uh, this is a message that we want to take seriously. And so stand with me and let's read the passage together. Revelation chapter 3, we're beginning in verse 14, where it says, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm, and neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have uh, prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may be see. You may see those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, we come before you, Lord, this morning and we ask that you would help us to come, Lord, right now with a heart of openness not with pretense in what we already know or we think we know, but, Lord, that we would allow your Holy Spirit to speak a fresh word to us this morning, that we would be so open, Lord, 
that we would be able to hear the truth from you. And so we humble ourselves, Lord, even now. And we open our hearts to you. And we ask you to have your way. We pray, Lord, that you speak through your Holy Spirit now to us and help us receive what it is that you would say. In Jesus' name, amen. Did you know that you can be in a crowd of people and be totally disconnected with them? You ever felt that way? You're in a crowd and you feel totally lonely. You're alone. You feel disconnected from everyone. It's possible and it happens all the time. It even happens in the church. I think there's really two reasons for that, though. One of the reasons is because sometimes we're not willing to connect with people, so it's really kind of on us. It's our issue. We're on the outside looking in because we choose to be there. And yet, there is a reality at the same time that sometimes we're on the outside looking in because we've been placed there by people. Not everybody wants to be your friend. I know you're awesome. But the reality of it is not everybody thinks you're awesome. (laughs) I've learned that the hard way. Being on the outside looking in is the position Jesus finds himself at this church in Laodicea. You caught it in the text, but notice Jesus is on the outside of the church, knocking on the door, asking to be let in. What in the world is going on here? How can Jesus be on the outside of the church? It's easy. He's not invited in. And here's what's going on. You have to understand this. And I, I mean, there's different interpretations of this, but I believe Jesus is speaking to a church full of unbelievers, 100% unbelievers, that there aren't any believers in this church. I could be wrong, but if there are believers in this church, here's the reality. They are at odds with Jesus in some way. They have allowed sin in their life. They become prideful. And they are not worshiping the King of kings and the Lord of lords. They are not in communion with him and fellowship with Christ. And that can happen to a believer. However you interpret this scripture, here is what we know. Jesus is on the outside looking in. Now, what I love about the passage is that Jesus doesn't just walk away. How many of you would do that? You're on the outside looking in. You're saying, I don't want anything to do with that. I don't like the way that makes me feel. I tell you the truth. I probably would walk away. Here's what I want you to understand. Jesus is not only standing there asking to be let in, but he's doing it with a loving heart. We can come to a passage like this, or we can meet Christians that maybe fit this mold, and we can be totally disgusted with them. Like, you call yourself a Christian, and all these sorts of things. You know you've been there. Yet that's not what I see Jesus doing. I see Jesus trying to get their attention. I see Jesus trying to reach them. Why? Because Jesus loves people. And if you love people... You're going to encounter all kinds of people, but those, you know, the way they respond to you is not going to push you away. You're going to press in. How many of you love a challenge when it comes to relationships? You know, you're like, that's a tough cookie. That's a tough nut to crack, man. I don't, I don't know if I can, I'm going to try. I love to do that with kids. When I have a kid that 
dislikes me. I know. It happens. <laughs> I won't even tell you what I was going to say. But anyway, when I have a kid that does not like me, you know what I do? That makes me, oh, okay. We'll see. We'll see how long this lasts. And so I begin to build a relationship with them. Sometimes it takes a long time. Sometimes it takes years. You know, but I continually go to that child and I continually make them, know, make them understand that I think they're important. And I try and build a relationship with that child. And I have seen, I have seen tough nuts crack. But it's because I pursued them. It's because I put the work in. Because I didn't give up and say, oh, you're not worth knowing. You see, Jesus, he thinks people are worth knowing no matter where they are. Even if they have the wool pulled over their eyes, even if they purposely put him outside of the church, he still loves them. And he comes after them. Man, does he love people. It's an amazing uh, passage we have here before us where Jesus is standing at the door of a people who are maybe consciously or unconsciously don't even know he's not inside. And yet he continues to knock and pursue them. I think that this is perhaps one of the favorite places of the enemy to get people is in a place where they think they have a relationship with Jesus, but they don't. And they have the wool pulled over their eyes and they think they're going to heaven, but they're not. I think he loves that. I think he loves when he's deceived a person to the point where they can't even tell if they have a relationship with the Lord or not. It's not all on him. It's on us. But he's the great deceiver. And yet Jesus, knowing that that person is still at enmity with him, not reconciled to the Father, desiring relationship, wanting to see their sins washed away. That's why he went to the cross, so that he could be in right relationship with people, so that their sins could be forgiven. But he will not allow people to think that they have what they don't have. He will address it with them. The question is, will they hear him? The church in Laodicea is hearing a knock, and perhaps they are the type of people that say, what are you talking about? I'm a believer. I know the Lord. Maybe, look, I've had an emotional experience or two with Jesus. I walked an aisle. I said a prayer. I'm a believer. All of those things are, are fine and dandy, but the question is, has your life changed? Do you want to know if you're a believer today? The, the, the Really, the onus is on you to look at your own life and say, have I changed the reality of salvation in a person's life, the evidence of it, I should say, is in a changed life. You know, Paul said, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anybody's in Christ, he's the same person. No, he's a different person. He's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, everything's become new. Jesus is in the business of not just cleaning us up, but he makes us brand new. When we're in right relationship with Jesus, when we're, when we're truly born again, we're not the same person. Doesn't mean we don't struggle with the same things that we struggled with. Doesn't mean that we don't fall in times. 
But the reality of it is, is that if your life has not changed, I, I don't think you should have security in your salvation. I don't think you should feel comfortable with where you are with the Lord. And that's where this church is. And, uh, you know, the, the idea of Jesus knocking here on the church, there, I think the context is Jesus standing at the door of the church. But many apply this to an individual, that Jesus is standing at the door of the heart, and he's knocking. And I think you can apply it that way, but the exegesis of the passage is Jesus talking about the church. But the church is people. And so at the end of the day, yes, Jesus does stand. Is there a door in your heart? Not really. It's an analogy. It's a metaphor. Jesus is saying, I am trying to get your attention at the place where it matters. The central place where all the decisions are made, where your emotions and your will and all of those things are brought together. And he's knocking there. He's been doing that consistently, consistently since the fall of man. Do you know that? Since the fall of man, Jesus has done that. But here's the reality of it. The door that he's knocking on only has a doorknob on the inside. This was captured by William Holman Hunt, the artist who painted the famous painting, The Light of the World. After he painted the picture, uh, he invited some of his art friends to come over and critique his work. And after looking at it for a, a moment or two, one of his friends said, it's a beautiful painting. But you forgot one thing, William. There's no doorknob on the door. To which he replied, that was intentional. The door can only be opened to Jesus from the inside. And that is the reality. What an amazing truth that was captured by this artist. The only way for Jesus to enter the door of your heart is if you let him in. What can be interesting is that Jesus can be on the outside looking in. And nobody really know it except for him. How do I know, you might say? Well, do you hear a knock? If you hear a knock, you might want to respond to it. You might want to listen up to what he says. He wants to give you an opportunity to know him personally so that your sins can be washed away. So you can spend eternity with him. That's his desire. That's why he does what he does. He said, or, or Peter wrote in 2 Peter 3, 9, you know the verse, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. Many people misinterpret God's patience for being slow. That's what Peter's saying. You think God is slow because he hasn't come yet. No, he's patient. What is he patiently doing? Knocking on people's hearts. He wants people to know him. He's desperate for lost people to come to a place of knowing him personally. Are you? Shouldn't his church in the last days be desperate for lost people to come to know him? It's so sad to me to see that, you know, uh, oftentimes we don't reach out to people when we should. The Holy Spirit, even myself, I'll, I'll put it on me, even 
at times where the Lord will say, you need to go do that. And I'm like, no, I don't know, Lord, I don't know. No, you do know. You do know. Go do it. The Lord is desperate for lost people to know him. And he's standing on the, the door of, he's standing at the door of their heart knocking. And sometimes he sends you to be the voice, to tell them about the Lord. The Lord is slow concerning his, uh, his coming for a purpose. He's not slow. He's, he's patient because he wants people to know him. He wants those who are outside of him to come to know him. Aren't you glad he didn't come in 1984 or 2001 or 2020? Man, I am because I got saved during that time. Oh, Lord, why aren't you coming yet? Why don't you come now, Lord? Look what's going on in our world today because he loves people. And if we love people, then we too will have the same heart. Hold on, Lord. Don't come yet, Lord. Let more people come to know you, Lord. Shouldn't that be our heart? Isn't that the reason why we long for Jesus to come is so that, you know, we long for him to come so it pushes us out the door to go tell somebody about Jesus. That's the point. That's why it's imminent. It could happen at any moment. But, but oftentimes we're sitting on our couch waiting for the bus to heaven rather than being out on the streets telling people about Jesus. And I don't think you have to stand on a street corner and do that. You know, I, I don't know how effective that is especially in our culture. I'm sure some people lead people to the Lord. My son went to Nashville on uh, Friday night, and they went out and witnessed to people on the street. And, <laughs> man, it was brutal. It was brutal. And I said, yeah, I can imagine. I've done it. I know how it is. I haven't street preached, but I've tried to talk to people about the Lord on the street. And, you know, hey, not everybody wants to hear about Jesus. Huh, who knew? It's the truth. But here's the reality of it. Jesus wants to know. He wants them to know him. And that's our, that should be our heart, Lord. Just one more moment, Lord. Just hold on one more moment so that this, these people can get saved, Lord. And he, all the while, he's knocking on their heart. And what's awesome is when you invite him in, he becomes the Lord of your life, and he invites you into the kingdom of God forever and ever. How awesome is that? What a privilege we have to be the people that are in the last days telling people that the Lord is coming soon. Jesus is here at this church in Laodicea, which represents a lukewarm apostate church, meaning the members of this church are unbelievers. It wasn't always the case, I don't think. Somewhere along the way, this church stopped relying on Jesus and took on the characteristics of its city. The, the deception happened as a result of this city being incredibly wealthy. Pride welled up. They became self-reliant, and that spilled over into the church. Any church that is self-reliant is not where Jesus wants them to be. He wants us to be fully reliant on the Holy Spirit. He wants us to be walking in the power, not of ourselves, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. You want to see amazing things happen? Walk in the Spirit of God. You want to see the Lord do miracles? Walk in the Spirit of God. You want to see the Lord use you mightily? Walk in the Spirit of God. You can manufacture some of these things in the flesh, but they won't be real. The Lord wants to do a real work. 
This city and the church were deceived by their wealth. Remember what Jesus said about wealth? In Matthew chapter 19, verses 23 and 24, he said, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Oh, I want to be rich, Lord. I can't wait to be rich. Why? You want to make your life more difficult? Isn't it difficult enough? He says it's more difficult for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Is it a problem with being rich? No, that's not the problem. Is money the problem? Oh, let's just get rid of the money. That's not the problem. The hard problem is the love of money, the love of wealth. This is what was going on in the city of Laodicea. They were deceived by their riches and by their wealth. They thought, oh, man, we can buy anything that we need. We have nothing. We need of nothing. And actually, Jesus tells them they're in need of the most important thing, a relationship with him. The issues for the citizens of Laodicea and those in the church there was the reality that they didn't think that they had any need, and yet Jesus says that they were blind, that they were poor, they were bankrupt, they were pitiable. They're in a state of spiritual bankruptness, and they don't even know it. By way of background, Laodicea was founded by Antichus II, Theos, not Epiphanes, around 261 B.C. It was named after his soon-to-be ex-wife, Laodice. The city was located 40 miles southeast of Philadelphia at, at an intersection of two important trade routes. It was the central banking system of the region. It was a wealthy city because that's where they kept all the money. They even minted their own gold coins there with images of, of the emperors and of Zeus and uh, Asclepius and Apollo. This city was so wealthy that when it was destroyed by an earthquake in A.D. 60, they declined financial support from Rome and said, oh, we'll build it ourselves with our own money. How much pride do you have to have to, 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 to um, you know, reject help in a situation like that? Yet these people did. They rejected the financial offers from Rome. Laodicea is one of the triad cities in the Lycus Valley. Colossae is just 10 miles to the east. Hierapolis was about six miles to the north. This city had no water source, and so it had aqueducts coming from both of these sources, both of these places. From Hierapolis, there was a hot springs there that they piped in water from, and there was cold water being piped in from Colossae. And um, unfortunately, when the water supply hit Laodicea on both sides, whether it was hot or cold, it became lukewarm by the time it got there. It's interesting. See how Jesus uses the analogies of, uh, you know, of, of situ the situation of that city. Laodicea was built upon a plateau, making it very easy to attack. Thus, the city officials were, were very likely to negotiate with their enemies so that they could avoid being uh, overtaken. The city was also famous for this special soft black wool that they produced there. They used it to make high-end clothing and carpet. They also produced a highly valuable 
eye salve. It was called Phrygian powder. It was used supposedly to heal all kinds of eye issues and such. And so people would take this powder and mix it with some water and put it on their eyes and supposedly they would be healed. Uh, this eye salve was also uh, attached to a medical school that they had there that was also attached to uh, the, uh, uh, a, a temple made to the Phrygian god Menkaro, which also is known as Asclepius. Remember who Asclepius is? He's the god of medicine. We, we talked about him early on. Many of these Greek, uh, he, you know, they had the temple there with uh, the, the snakes, you know, that would, you would go in the temple if you wanted to be healed and you'd be hoped that these these non-poisonous snakes would slither over you and touch you, and then you would be healed. That's how they worshiped this God. He was the son of Apollo, supposedly, and, the, and he was the God of healing, truth, and pros, uh, pro- prophecy. There was also a large population of Jews in this city. Um, they, too, had become deceived by the riches of this city, so much so that when spoken of in the Talmud, um, that, that they, they were spoken of the ease and laxity of the lifestyle of these Laodicean Jews. They were spoken negatively because they were so caught up in the riches. It's interesting to note that Jesus addresses all three of these industries, the financial industry, the black wool, and the ISAV in his correction to this church. For they had become dependent upon themselves for the ability to produce earthly wealth. The church, how, did it, how was it established? We don't know. Probably from believers in Ephesus. Ephesus was, uh, Paul really spent a lot of time there and it looked like many missionaries went out from Ephesus and uh, you know, proselytized the, the city, all the cities around them. Probably the case. But what we do know is Paul mentions actually the church in Laodicea a couple times in the book of Colossians. In one particular time, at the very end, he tells us something interesting. Colossians chapter 4, verse 15, he says, Give my greetings, listen, to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. Paul wrote this letter sometime, you know, in his first imprisonment around 60 AD or so. So Jesus, Paul, or John is writing on behalf of Jesus in 95 AD, some 35 years later. And what happened to this church? They're apostate. They're gone. Did, did the believers leave? Well, if there are believers there, I think they probably took off because I think Jesus is talking to unbelievers here. The church at some point set Jesus on the outside. Jesus, we got it from here. Thanks for bringing us up to this place, but we got it from here. That's what happens when a church becomes people-centered or man-centered and starts relying on earthly things to build itself and such. What happens is Jesus gets set on the outside. The Holy Spirit's no longer working. It's It's the works of man. It's the works of the flesh. Do you know that you can be, you can keep, you can be, Uh, incredibly successful in this culture and not even have the Holy Spirit speaking through the pulpit? Did you know that? Listen, it's happening. And what you need to understand is it's always happened. It's always happened. That's always been the case. The enemy has always used false teaching and been very effective with it. 
Look at the numbers of Jehovah Witnesses. Look at the numbers of, you know, um, of, of the Mormon religion. Look at the numbers of the Muslim religion. You know the fastest growing religion right now? Satanism. Satanism. It's a religion. It's more atheism this day in culture. It's not necessarily worshiping the devil, but, but they're not worshiping God. And there's only two people we can worship in this world. And it's not yourself, it's God or the devil. The two options. You will worship somebody. The question is, who will it be? Paul mentions this church, and this church somehow in 35 years had allowed itself to, to depart the true faith, put Jesus on the outside. Jesus literally has nothing good to say to this church. He doesn't say, hey, there's a few of you there that are walking with the Lord and, you know, just encourage you to stay the court. He doesn't say that. He says nothing good to this church because this church has nothing, nothing godly going on. They're going through the motions, but it's not for the Lord. And so the Lord addresses them. The, the, the outline of the church is somewhat different than the ones that we've talked about yeah, the, the last six churches. He, he addresses the correspondent. Then he gives a correction. And then he gives some counsel to the church. Jesus says, let me counsel you. Hey, step into my office. Let's talk for a moment, you know. He, he wants to counsel them on where they are. Then he gives them an invitation. And finally, a conditional promise. All hope is not lost in Laodicea. Oh, I, did I say America? You could apply it. All hope is not lost. God is on the throne. God loves lost people, and he's knocking on their hearts. Anything is possible with the Lord. He could wake this nation up tomorrow, folks, and he's trying. And so anything is possible. We don't give up hope. The Lord is the God of hope, and he's at work. We begin with the correspondent of the church. Jesus says... In verse 14, and to the angel of the church of Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Notice the address is to the, uh, of this letter is to the angel, again, the messenger, or perhaps even the, the pastor of the church in Laodicea. I liken it to the pastor. I believe that that's who he's talking to. He's responsible for the spiritual health of this church. Here's what's interesting is that this pastor is not doing his job. He's not feeding the sheep. He's not care caring for the sheep. He's not tending the sheep. He's not loving the sheep. What he's done is adopted culture into the church, and now the whole church is wayward. A little leaven leavens the whole lump, folks. All it takes is a, a few little wrong doctrines. The next thing you know, 30 years from now, you're way off. That's why it's so important, and I say it all the time. Make sure you understand who you're listening to. Make sure they're, 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 they're grounded in the word of God and not their own thoughts. Man, we can make up some weird stuff. We'll talk about that in a moment. This, this guy is, is, has made a church that is self-centered, not Christ-centered. Self-reliant, not reliant on the Holy Spirit. 
Perhaps he's too busy purchasing luxurious chariots or focused on building a mansion in the foothills of Laodicea to take notice that the church that he's responsible for has become lukewarm. What we know is this pastor had allowed the culture of apostasy to exist, and he was comfortable with that. And so the Lord addresses him. This is the reality of any person who desires to be a teacher in the church, or to be a leader in the church, there's responsibility, direct responsibility to Jesus. I'm taking some guys through a book here on Tuesday nights, and we just went through a chapter talking about, you know who the shepherd of this church is? It's Jesus. It's not me. This ain't my church. Although some people say, hey, your church is not my church. I love to correct people because it's not my church. It's his church. Every leader in this church is an under-shepherd. We have a shepherd. His name is Jesus. But here's the reality. There's responsibility when it comes to that. I have responsibility. One day I'm going to answer to the Lord for what took place in this hour and a half uh, you know, or in the two services that will begin, I'm going to answer to the Lord for everything that takes place in this building. And you're going to answer to the Lord for everything that takes place in your building, in your life, in your workplace, in your, you know, you name it. We answer to the Lord. He's the, the great shepherd. But this pastor has responsibility. He's not doing his job. Jesus addresses him. We're not, we're, we're kind of, a lot of us are afraid of conflict. I hate conflict. I hate having to talk to people about stuff. But do you know what? It's important. And if you don't do it, you're shirking your responsibility that the Lord's put on your shoulders. Listen, he wants us to deal with stuff. So be serious about that. Jesus needs the pastor of this church and the congregation to recognize three things about himself that are directly related to the state of this church. He says that he's the amen, the faithful and true witness, and finally, the beginning of God's creation. First, he's the amen. You know the word amen means so be it or it's done in the Hebrew. The word means truth, affirmation, or certainty. In the New Testament, in the Greek, it means it can be translated verily or truly. Jesus used this word all the time. Truly, truly, I say to you, or verily, verily, I say to you. What he's really saying is amen and amen. What he is a, when you read a statement from that from Jesus, what he is trying to declare to you and I is that what I'm about to say is true. And you should amen that to the, to the you know, till the cows come home, as they say. You know? And, and so uh, Jesus... Use, he is the amen. He's the word. He's, his word is true and certain. And when Jesus makes a statement, it will come to pass. It is certain. Everything that he said will come to pass. Everything. Now, it's also said that everything in the word of God will come to pass through Jesus. He is the amen to all the promises of God. 2 Corinthians 1.20 for all the promises of God find their yes in him, Jesus. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. In Christ, we have certainty regarding the promises of God in the Old Testament and the New Testament because they find their yes in him. He is the amen. Secondly, Jesus is the faithful and true witness. 
We see this mentioned in Revelation, the book of Revelation, the first three chapters in Revelation 1-5. Jesus is depicted as, uh, as the tr- true witness and... Uh, where am I at? Jesus is depicted as the faithful witness, and then Revelation 3, 5, as the true one. The word faithful means reliable. The word true means trustworthy. Unlike the pastor and the congregates of Laodicea, Jesus is reliable and trustworthy witness. He never drifts off mission, folks. Jesus never departs from Uh, His call on this earth. In his darkest hour, Jesus was faithful. He went to the cross. He was crucified. Even Pilate made a mention in John 18 about who Jesus is. And Jesus said, I am here to bear witness of the truth. He's here to bear witness of the truth. So are you and I. As believers, as followers of Christ, we're born again to witness, to bear witness of the truth. Are you being faithful and a true witness for Christ? Jesus was and even is today. Lastly, Jesus declares himself as the beginning of God's creation. This is not to be confused with the idea that Jesus is a created being. Many doctrines take this, many Many false um, teachers and, and false religions, they remove the power of who Jesus is. They change who Jesus is by stripping him of his deity. That's what was happening in Laodicea. There was that teaching going on in that they were stripping Jesus of who he really was. Listen, in order to be saved, in order to have a relationship with God, for your sins to be forgiven, you have to be coming to the right Jesus. You can't just come to any Jesus. You know, you can go to Mexico and find a lot of Jesuses, a a lot of Jesuses, right? Listen, you have to be worshiping the right Jesus. The right Jesus is not just the beginning of creation. That word literally beginning means he is the origin of God's creation. He is the creator, Jesus Christ. He is not a created being. He is not Michael who became Michael, the archangel who became uh, the son of man, Jesus Christ, is not who he is. He is Yahweh. He is, he is God. Um, he, God exists in three people, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the creator of all things. And we know this in John 1, 1 through, 1 through 3. It tells us this. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jehovah's Witnesses will say Jesus was a God. That's not what it says. He was God. Verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. That, dis- that makes it distinct. There's three different people there that are God. They're all one, but they're three persons that are working together in total conjunction, one, all, completely equal as it relates to who they are, but different positions in what they do. Jesus is creator and savior of the world. He was in the beginning with God. Jesus wasn't created. He's creator. Verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. He's creator. 
Colossians 1, 15 through 17, Paul, again, it's interesting, he's addressing a, 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 a town 10 miles away from Laodicea about the deity of Jesus Christ. If you read the book of Colossians, it's about who Jesus is. It's his identity. He is the creator. He's God. And people need to understand that, that the enemy was trying to strip Jesus of who he was from the beginning. Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn. It's a positional word, meaning he existed before and is supreme over all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, including angels and the fallen ones. He's creator over all things. He's not an angel because he's not created. Verse 17, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I find it fascinating that one of the biggest questions that people have in this life is where did we come from? Where, where did we come from? How did life begin? You want me to tell you? Jesus Christ created the world, and he created you. That's where you came from. Now, what's interesting is, because that is the truth, the enemy tries to deceive the world, and so you have, you know, some of the smartest people in the world make up stuff to explain to us where we came from. And they call it science. Listen, here's the interesting thing. This bothers me so much. I don't use the pulpit for my own personal gain, but here, you're going you're gonna to get it this morning. So here's the reality of it. It's called, listen, the theory of evolution. The theory of evolution. It's not called the fact of evolution. Why? Because there's not scientific evidence to prove it. It cannot be a fact. Here's the reality of it. It's, it boils down to one thing. In creation, from the beginning of time until now, can anybody show me or you or anyone else a change of kind? A change of kind. No, they cannot. Then evolution is debunked. Evolution says there's been a change of kind, meaning something started this way and it became this, totally different. That is the theory of evolution. The reality of it is, is that Darwin looked at some canaries, and he said, look at the beaks are different. That's called adaptation. That is not a change of kind. It blows my mind that people, you know, when I was in fifth grade, I'll be flat out honest with you, I did not grow up in the church I had no question, I, you know, but I was sitting in fifth grade. My teacher put up the evolutionary, you know, timeline. Do you know what I said as a fifth grader? Are you kidding me? I literally said that in my mind. I was thinking like, are you serious? How, what? Are you serious? People live their lives based on this. People make decisions for eternity based on this information, you guys. They teach this to our kids every, uh, every day in, in eighth grade, science. 
You still doing that? <laughs> hey, this guy has an opportunity, man. My daughter brought home Neil deGasse Tyson's rendition of the cosmic calendar. You know, they take the 13.8 supposed billion years of, uh, from the time of the Big Bang into the evolution of mankind, and they put it on a, on a, on a one-year calendar. And man, does it seem so factual. On January 1st, 13.8 billion years ago, there was a big bang. And all of a sudden, there was an expansion and, you know, all this sort of stuff. And this is how the world began. On March 15th, and I'm thinking like, how do you know it was only that many billion years how do you know it was only that many billion years? How can you condense this and say that it's this many billion years? Listen, we, can't e we don't even know the true birth date of Jesus Christ. And you're telling me, and he was a real person, right? But you're telling me that you can kind of map out the creation of the world on a cosmic calendar? No way. No way. Listen, if, when you talk to people who, who ascribe to this, notice if you stick to the script, they divert to different things. Oh, let's talk about thermodynamics. Let's talk about this or that or whatever. Listen, here's what you need to understand. God was a scientist. He was an engineer. He's a physicist. And he created all these things. And some of what is, you know, probably the logic of some of what's being said is true. The reality of it is, is though, we know where it came from and we know how it happened. And it takes way more faith to believe in evolution and the idea that, you know, something just happened as, as a matter of coincidence, and it all lined up, and this is what we have. That is crazy to me. Like, as a fifth grader, that was crazy to me. And as a believer in Jesus Christ, that is even crazier to me now, knowing what I know. If we're making up stuff... Why don't we just say angels came down or, or aliens came down and left some, some sort of toxic single-cell organism that created... Oh, wait, th there's that theory too. <laughs> Man. So, anyway, rant over. Back to what we were talking about. Jesus is the beginning of creation. He's the creator of all things. Everything else is nonsense, folks. Everything else is nonsense. Nothing else makes logical sense. Jesus Christ is creator. If you're, um, uh, if you're into that kind of stuff, there's some great resources I can give you. But um, Jesus wants, us, wants this church to know that's creator of all things. Why? Because they are being deceived about who he is. There's teaching going around that he's not creator and all of these sorts of things. Laodicea was diminishing the identity of Jesus Christ as creator and God, as are many in our culture today, to minimize the fact that God came down. He came down personally. He didn't send a proxy. He didn't send another created being to do what needed to be done. He came himself because he wants a relationship with you. He came and did that for you. Jesus makes it clear here that he is the amen, the faithful and true witness and the origin of God's creation. He goes on here to give this church uh, 
a, a correction relating to their spiritual condition in verse 15. I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot, that you would either, that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich. I have prospered and need, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Here's what you need to understand. This church was totally deceived in who they are. So Jesus uses this analogy, as I talk, talked about earlier, about their water sources. He says, you're neither cold nor hot. Their water sources didn't come, they, they were on a plateau. They had to pipe their water in. So they took the hot water from Hierapolis. They took the cold water from Colossae. And when it got to um, Laodicea, it was what? Lukewarm. The distance between the cities had either caused the water to warm up or to cool down. And when it got there, it was literally useless. That's what he's saying. The state of this church is like your water in your city. You are useless. Why? Can't you just do a little bit of something, Jesus? No, I can't. Why? Because it's 100% the flesh. There's no spirit involved at all in what's happening here. It's all the flesh, 100%. And I'm telling you what, there's churches all over America, all over the world like that. There's no spirit working at all. Do you know for a, a, a long period of time, when the Spirit of God departed the temple in the Old Testament, they didn't even know it. They didn't even have a clue. They just kept going through the routine, the religious routine of sacrificing animals and all this kind of stuff, not even linking the fact that there's no Holy Spirit at all at work in what they were doing. There's churches filled, or there's, there's churches all over America just like this that are lukewarm. Literally, Jesus says they're not usable. He wants you to be usable. He wants you to to recognize that. The question is, are you useful? Have you become lukewarm in your relationship with the Lord? This applies to believers as well. We can backslide, man. Listen, if you're not where you once were with Jesus, you need to get back. You need to get back to that place. You need to be on fire for the Lord. Time is short. He needs his church serious, man. Look at the stuff happening in our nation today. And we need to be serious about not, not the earthly things, but about the spiritual things. This earth will burn. Everything in it will burn. But guess what? Every single person that exists is eternal. And that's what our focus should be. Where are these people going? It all starts with you personally and your relationship with the Lord. Are you on fire for God? Are you useful for him? You know, uh, there's the idea that being hot or cold is literally the same thing, that being cold is refreshing and being hot is therapeutic and, you know, and, and that sort of thing. Some people say that what he means is when you're cold, you're literally, you, want, you don't want anything to do with the Lord. And when you're hot, you want to, to everything to do with the Lord. And, and the Lord would either you be one of those rather than being lukewarm where you think you have something and you don't. Here's what I know. The Lord wants to use you. He wants, but it has to start out of your personal relationship with the Lord. It all starts there. Don't just go through the motions. Don't share your faith because you're supposed to. Share your faith because you care about people, because God has changed your heart. 
How do you get to a place like that? You press into Jesus. You press into him, and you're true, and you're honest with yourself. Man, Lord, I had a little session on the way to church this morning with the Lord, being honest with him about my walk with the Lord, saying, Lord, man, here's some things I need you to help me with, Lord. Here's the reality of He's not asking you to do it on your own. He's asking you to acknowledge it so that you know. He already knows. He knows your spiritual temperature. He knows where you sit, but he's asking you to acknowledge it. What are you doing with the Lord? He goes on here. He tells this. That they're so deceived and thinking that, oh, we're rich and we have everything that we need. And Jesus says, you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, uh, blind, and naked. He tells this church exactly the truth. And do you know what we do when Jesus addresses us like that? Because sometimes he uses people. Oh, that person's totally off. Are they? Are they? Be honest. Are they? When you hear the Holy Spirit, are you saying, oh, those are my thoughts? Are they? Or are they the Lord's? Be, be honest with yourself. Paul said, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That means that you are literally going, you're literally like concerned about your life and what's going on in your life, how you're living your life. You have concern about it. You're not just like, I got the golden ticket. I'm going to the chocolate factory, right? No. You get to go to heaven if you're a believer, yes. That's one issue. But you get to be used by God here, now. But you won't be if you're lukewarm. God wants us to be honest about where we are with him. He'll be honest with you if you ask him. And he wants you to respond in a certain way. He goes on to counsel this church. Verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may be clothed, clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Jesus is counseling this church. He's given them advice on what they need to do here because he loves them. Sometimes we just judge people. We, we, we don't really help them out at all. We just tell them like, dude, you suck. You're blowing it, man. I can't believe you call yourself a Christian and you walk off like that? Really? Is that what the Lord wants you to say to them? I think the Lord wants us to counsel people on how to become what they are supposed to be. And he, this idea comes from Isaiah chapter 55, verse 1, which says, come. It's an invitation from the Lord Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. All the folks in Laodicea had to do was acknowledge their need for Jesus. That's what he meant by come and buy. Come and buy these things. Just acknowledge where you're at and believe in faith in who I am. That's the first start. And you know what? Unfortunately, as, as we talked about earlier, for a wealthy person, that's difficult because they don't think they have need. I liken it to the rich young ruler who, who wanted eternal life but then wasn't willing to do what, what was necessary in the moment to gain it. Oh, Jesus, I've done all these things, you know, and whatever. I've, I've lived my life the way that I'm supposed to. He says, cool, man. Well, just go sell everything you got and come follow me. Do you know what it says? He went away 
sorrowful. What? He was so wrapped up in his money that he, he thought, oh, I can't do that. I love it too much. The deception of wealth, thinking you don't have need. He knew he needed Jesus, but he wasn't willing to give up the idol in his life to obtain it. That is a sad state. It's kind of an irony that Jesus goes on here, and he tells this, <laughs> these people in Laodicea, um, he kind of illustrates through the things that he says here, uh, you know, go buy gold refined with fire, and yet this place was a mountain of gold. It was the central banking system of the area. They had plenty of gold, but Jesus said, your gold is corrupt. Your gold is earthly gold. Let me give you, uh, let me give you um, kingdom gold. Come to me and you can buy those things. It will last the test of time. It will walk through the fire. It's refined. It's pure is what he's saying. He goes on here and he, he says, you guys have this fancy black uh, a wool and, and cloth that you clothe yourselves in, and yet Jesus says, you're naked. You're not clothed at all. You think because you're wearing those fancy brand name clothes that that makes you something? It might in this world, but it does not in the kingdom of God. He said, what you need is a robe of righteousness. Hey, it's not going to say Versace on it. It's going to say Jesus Christ. It's his righteousness. We're clothed with his righteousness, not something that you can do on your own. He said, it will cleanse you of your shame. You know how we hide shame by being outward and trying to make ourselves more than who we really are to kind of hide who we really are? It's a facade. They continue, oh, yeah, we have this cure for people who are blind and have this need for their eyes. Jesus says, oh, man, you need my salve, the kind that... I made when I spit on the ground and took some dirt and put it on the dude's eye and told him to go wash in the pool of Siloam, you know? That's the kind of salve you need. It's a, it's a salve that comes from me. This stuff will not last. Jesus is telling this church who thinks that they have everything they need that they are so wrong. They're so wrong about it. How sad. He goes on to give an invitation to this church in verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to, into him and eat with him and he with me. Here's what you need to understand about the Lord. When he, he loves us, so he disciplines us. He loves us, so he reproves and he disciplines us. A, a parent who does not discipline their children does not truly love their children. I'm just saying. That's the reality. If you truly love your children, you want what's best for your children. And what's best for your children is not to let them do what they want. How do I know? Because I was a child once. My parents would have let me do whatever I wanted. Dude, I would have been a, way worse than I was. And I was bad already. My parents, they gave me some discipline. But, you know, it, it, Jesus, Jesus disciplines his children and he disciplines the world because he wants to point the world to himself. He's trying to point the world to himself. Do you know um, the, the, uh, the, the parable of the good shepherd who would leave the 99 sheep to go after the one? Why would he do that? Because the 99 are already his. They're already in his fold. 
They're safe. Have to worry about it. But the one is out by himself. He's going to be devoured. And, is, and for all of eternity, he'll be separated from Jesus. So he departs the 99 to go after the one. Some of us are comfortable in the 99. But we don't want to go after the one. We're, we're like, oh, they can fend for themselves. But that's not the heart of Jesus. The heart of Jesus is to go after the one. And, and he demonstrates that by saying, I, I'm giving an invitation to anybody and everybody who will accept it. I stand at the door of every human heart, and I'm knocking. And what he wants us to do is to be zealous and repent. That's how you answer the door. You answer the door by acknowledging who he is, by acknowledging what he's done, and confessing who you are and what you've done. That's the idea. That's what he wants us to do. When you come to Christ, you have to understand what you're being saved from. You have to acknowledge the fact that you need Jesus, right? That's not sincere belief if you don't. Sincere belief is saying, Jesus, I recognize there is no other way to get to you. I've recognized that I, I'm a wreck and I need your help. I recognize that I'm not good, but you're good. I recognize who I am, but I recognize who you are. That's what he's saying here. Repentance is the key to turning away from your sin. Number one, confessing your sin and then turning away from it and turning to Christ. That is what is required in order for you to answer the door. He won't come in unless you do that. He won't come in unless you truly put all your faith in him and not in yourself at all. And that's the problem. That's why we say a prayer or we do something externally and there's emotions attached to it and we feel like, oh yeah, I did that like when I was in fifth grade. Has your life changed? Are you walking with the Lord? Well, I was back then, you know, but not, not really now. You know, we, listen, do not allow yourself to be deceived by your feelings. Do not. Let the word of God tell you the truth. If you're not in true relationship with Christ, you need to do that today. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. Here's what I know, is the more that you, he knocks on the door, the less you hear it. The less you hear it. Statistically proven. Most people come to Christ by the time they're 18, and then the statistics drop off staggeringly. It's bad. It's bad. If you hear that knock this morning, you need to put your faith in Jesus. Do not trust in some experience you had seven years ago or 12 years ago or 30 years ago. But I will also say this. Understand your feelings and know that am I just convicted by, you know, the Lord and I'm a believer, but, you know, I want to I do all the right things or is the Lord really knocking on your heart for salvation? There's a difference. Here's what I'll say is it does not hurt to receive the Lord. Even if you're a believer and you're like, man, I feel convicted about this, take the step of faith. Do not rest. Do not, um, do not leave this place because this might be the last knock you hear. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. The Lord didn't say, hey, I'm, you're, gonna, you're gonna live X amount of years or whatever. You don't know. So you need to, he goes on here, for those who that do respond to him, in verse 
21, to the one who conquers, I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The reward for the conqueror who trusts in Jesus is that he will grant them to sit upon his throne in heaven. You become an heir to the throne of Christ by grace, through faith in Christ alone. You become an heir to the throne of Christ. That means one day you will rule and reign with Christ. That's your reward for those who conquer, for those who come to Christ, for those who put their trust in Christ, for those who answer the knock. You gain you gain a right to the throne of Christ. Jesus gained his right the same way, not by grace through faith, but by his works, and then we put our trust in his works. So we're saved by works, just not our own, his works. Jesus' works, his perfect works, everything that he's done for us. And when we put our trust in him, we overcome, we conquer we're going to see here when we get to chapter 6 when they bring out the scroll that nobody's worthy of opening that Jesus says, I'm worthy of opening. He steps onto the scene and it says, he's worthy because he conquered. He's worthy because he conquered. And so we're, we're, going, to, we're going to see that, I hope, one day. I believe the church is going to be raptured. I believe we're going to be in heaven when that happens. It'll be awesome to see. Total silence in heaven for 30 minutes. I don't know what that's like, but I know that a, a thousand, uh, one day is a thousand years to the Lord. I don't know how long 30 minutes is in heaven, but it's, I think it's a long time because the Lord is patient. Here's what you need to understand this morning. There is a spirit of Laodicea in our midst. And in fact, many believe, uh, many teachers that, that look at the, the historical application of these seven churches will say that minimum one of these churches will exist in the end days, in the last days, when Jesus comes back, and it's this church, the church of Laodicea. Makes sense. Makes sense that there'll be a church in the last days like Laodicea that has a form of godliness but denies its power. Yeah? Many other people believe that there will also be another church just right up until the rapture of the church, and that is the church of Philadelphia. Those two churches will be the only two types of churches that exist in the last days. You make up your mind on it. Here's what I know. All seven of these churches, all the elements of these seven churches, I believe, exist in people. Where do you sit? If you sat through these seven different uh, letters to the seven different churches, you got to ask yourself, where do I fit in here? I believe you could apply this to your life. Maybe you're like me. Every week you're like, oh, 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 oh. Different elements of different things. And the Lord's speaking to you. That's what his word does. It's applicable to you. The question this morning you have to ask yourself is, am I this church? Is Jesus on the outside looking in? I don't want him to be. And he doesn't have to be. He's not there because he's chosen to be there. He's there because he's been put there. And the only way to remedy that is for you to invite him in. Amen? 
Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you for the letters to these seven churches, and specifically this morning, Lord, the sobering letter to the church at Laodicea. Father, we know that um, just it's so clear in the scripture this morning that you love human beings so much that you will endure and you will tirelessly pursue us relentlessly because you love us so much. Lord, there's not a single person in the world that can say, man, there's nobody that loves me. Oh, there's one that loves you more than you could ever even imagine. And we ask you this morning, Lord, to help us to take what we've heard and to apply now the word of God into our lives. Father, we don't want to be lukewarm people. For some of us, Lord, we have, we've not we're, we're believers that are not living up to our name. We've allowed the culture to dole us down or we've gotten sidetracked in some way, shape, or form. And your remedy for that is the same as the person who's not in relationship with you at all. It's called repentance. It's called acknowledging our sin before you and turning away from it and turning back towards you. We ask you in this place, in these last moments, Lord, that you do what only you can do. You draw every human heart to yourself right now, Lord. You already have. But that we would have the nerve to respond to you. Come by your spirit, Lord. As we continue to pray, and every eye closed and every head bowed, that if you're here this morning, you, you, you hear the door, the Lord is knocking on your heart this morning. Listen, he wants to be in right relationship with you. And maybe you're saying, eh, I've done that, but, but you're still hearing him knock. You need to take, take a step of faith today and acknowledge what he's saying to you because he's the one we answer to. If that's you this morning, you just lift your hand up. I want to lead you in a prayer. It's not the prayer itself. Just lift your hand up high so that I could see you. And if you need a right relationship with Jesus, if you're online, you can just acknowledge him this morning. Listen, this moment will depart and the knock might get fainter, but Jesus will never leave the door because he loves you. The problem is you're not guaranteed tomorrow. So if that's if you don't know that you know that you know you're going to heaven this morning, lift your hand up. You pray a prayer with me to receive Christ as your Savior and your Lord. God bless you. God bless you. Is there anyone else? God bless you. Is there anyone else? The Holy Spirit is the one moving. It's the Lord is knocking. He's whispering in your ear. That's you. There's no shame in that. He wants to take your shame away. Anyone else? God bless you. For those of you that lifted your hand, will you just pray a prayer with me in your heart? In sincerity, you just put your faith in Jesus this morning. 
not in the words that were spoken, but in Jesus himself. And you just say, Lord Jesus, I come to you now, acknowledging that I have departed, Lord, that I'm a sinner, that I need a Savior this morning. And I recognize that you're the one, you're the only one that can save me. I turn away from my sin and I turn to you today. I want to be clothed in that robe that you talk about in your word. I acknowledge that you died for me on the cross, that you rose again from the dead for me personally so that I could be saved. And I put my trust in you, in Jesus' name. And as you pray that prayer, all of heaven rejoices because you are now born again. If you've prayed that prayer in a sincerity of faith, For the rest of us, Lord, you know where we are, and we just pray that we would respond if we need to repent, that we would turn away, Lord, that we would be filled with your spirit and that we would depart this place, Lord, on the right foot to not get sidetracked with the things that don't matter, but to remember, there's only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Will you stand with us? Hey, at the end of the service, there'll be some people up here to pray with you. So we're going to close in the song. Once the song is closed, if you want to pray with some people, they'll be up here to pray with you. If you accepted the Lord, would you come down and talk to one of these people about the decision that you've made? We want to just lead you and help you on your way in your walk with the Lord. Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.